Hello and welcome to The Green Stream, a podcast brought to you by Sustainable Business Network Detroit, a network of partnerships between Southeast Michigan stakeholders, innovators, and changemakers. Each partner is on a mission to advance and amplify sustainable business practices, and we're here to learn from, share, and help activate a sustainable way forward for Greater Detroit. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And head over to our website, sbn-detroit.org. Now, let's listen in to our conversation with today's sustainability leaders. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Nancy Capper. I am a columnist at the Detroit Free Press. I, on the opinion page, I write about politics, policy, all kinds of complicated things in between. I have been lucky to write about climate and environment and sustainability and specifically as that pertains to the city of Detroit and in my work. And I'm very excited to be here this morning with Helen Taylor, who's the state director of the Nature Conservancy for the state of Michigan, the the one we're in here. Um, She has an incredibly long and fascinating resume in environmentalism. She is a gubernatorial appointee to the Environmental Rules Review Committee. Um, She has been on the Michigan Land Use Leadership Council, the Agriculture Preservation Fund, and as a commissioner of the Great Lakes Commission and on former Governor Rick Snyder's 21st Century Infrastructure Commission. So she's done everything. She knows everything about this and is an incredibly amount of expertise to tap this morning to discuss really pressing and relevant issues to how all of us live. Helen, it's so nice to be here with you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Can you talk just a little bit about how, uh, about your background, how you wound up doing this work? Oh my. Well, I started out as a philosophy major, which I guess that makes me very curious about everything, but I love science. And I just feel fortunate. Back then, there weren't all the degrees in environmental studies that you have today. So I've learned an awful lot of what I do um, by application. Um, and I, I, the minute I saw the Great Lakes, that's where I decided I wanted to stay because it's the largest freshwater system in the world. I, I found it fascinating. So for the last 30 Three years, um, I've been focusing on Great Lakes health and Great Lakes issues, and Michigan is the center of that. So, are you are you from Michigan? I grew up in Indiana, and oh, okay. then in Chicago for twenty years, and now I've been over twenty years in in Michigan. I'm not oh. from here either, but I've been here for twenty two years. This place will get you. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I feel a lot like the luckiest person <laughs> in this job to be doing it in a state like this. Um, I think philosophy was actually a pretty good preparation for this work. It teaches you to think critically and and construct persuasive arguments and and take in so much information. I agree. I'm an advocate for liberal arts um, studies because you then eventually uh, learn the facts and the figures and the science of what you're working with through application. So it served me very well. And, And how to, you know, big focus of the liberal arts education is how to clearly communicate um, those ideas and things you know to other people, which you can know everything in the world, and if you can't share it compellingly, you're kind of out of luck. That's right. Um, so, so what uh, what is your focus at the Nature Conservancy? So, the Nature Conservancy's mission is to protect the lands and waters on which all life depends. So, mm-hmm. I know that the Sustainability Business Network is focused on sustainability, and that's quite relevant to how we view the world and how we want to contribute to the future. We think about it as 
uh, a vision where people people in nature can thrive together. And so I think of the word that comes to mind immediately when I am asked about sustainability is the word balance. A balanced use of natural resources so they can continue to provide, deepening the understanding of how natural resources is the basis of everything, our economy, mm-hmm. social, cultural, quality of life, everything. So using those resources and managing them in balance for people and nature is essential if we want to continue to exist on this planet. So so if you think about that balance and that need to have balance, um, where do you, if like this is a scale, like where are we in the balance? I think it depends on the portal and the lens through which you are looking. But I know what's driving our work right now are two very significant crises. And it's the biodiversity loss crisis and it's climate change. And those mm-hmm. things are uh, connected and intertwined with each other. And they're connected to everything else that we do mm-hmm. on Earth with managing our ecosystem health. Yeah, it's it's it can be daunting sometimes because, you know, I write about politics a lot and everything that happens in politics seems so urgent and pressing and of the moment. And, you know, this has to happen or this can't happen or must happen. But then I, you know, you remember like, oh, and then there's climate change and that's kind of the ball game, And none of this stuff is really going to matter if we don't sort this stuff out. But then this stuff is connected to whether we sort this stuff out. But it's sometimes easier to focus on these little day to day things because that one is big well, and scary for it, people it, like me obviously not for experts well like, I, think, I think they're overwhelming I have this conversation mm-hmm. with my two sons that it just seems so overwhelming how can we make a difference mm-hmm. and I think the thing I, I try to share with people is you have to unpack the issues there's many components we can all be contributing to and yeah if I thought about them at the macro level every day I would be very worried and discouraged and and so you need to find a place where you can fit in and make a difference and, and feel rewarded and know that it's making a difference. And so you have to unpack it. Well, that's a great setup for my next question, which is that, you know, Nature Conservancy has made bold moves in green stormwater infrastructure work in support of both Detroit and Eastern Market with a particularly interesting project at the parking lot of Sacred Heart Church, which is a hundred year old church where uh, the Nature Conservancy installed a green stormwater facility at no cost to the church. Talk a little bit about that project, why it's important to the community and the water quality and um, not just the, the water quality, but to, to flooding impact and the impact of stormwater on waterways. So so start anywhere. But I'll, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll prompt if, if, if we kind of run out of steam on one part of the answer. Right. So. Well, the first thing I need to do is thank the Ralph C. Wilson uh, Jr. Foundation because they enabled us to do this project. We wouldn't have been able to do it without their support. But what we were trying to demonstrate is how nature can contribute as a solution to many of the issues we're facing. And so we're seeing increased storm events, Mm -hmm. and that's being contributed to by climate change, right? So Mm -hmm. we um, are experiencing lots of flooding. Uh, When that flooding happens, um, and when that increased rainfall happens, the city of Detroit's wastewater treatment plant can't handle all that. So they actually end up having to release the the waters and that then introduces sewage into the Great Lakes. So all these things are interconnected. What we wanted to show is how nature can actually be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. It's not the silver bullet, but it actually brings in all kinds of co-benefits. So what we did is in working with a church who has a big parking lot. So that was a great demonstration project because these big parking lots are impervious. And so the water runs off. What we did is we 
in, installed uh, a pretty sophisticated engineering below the surface, but actually a lot of plants that drink a lot of water. And we route water off the roof of the church into these gardens. The gardens make the parking lot much more beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. It's brought the con congregation together. They have a gardening committee now to take care of these plants. And last year, we actually, there was an intense rainfall, you might remember. And we I went had, I had I had uh, eight water inches of water in my basement. Oh my I gosh! Live, I live in Southwest Detroit, so yeah. <laughs> so we went to look at how did it perform, and there was no flooding whatsoever. So oh. it worked. So this installation is capable of our our estimate is that it'll manage about one and a half million gallons a year, but it's oh. capable of managing three point five million. So if the if we have more of those types of storm events, it's got some capacity, and. That's well, I was going to say it, and it reduced their drainage charge by half. That's so. actually what I was about to ask about <laughs> because the city of Detroit, um, if folks don't know, taxes uh, or, or, or assesses a drainage fees differently based on how much of your lot is impervious and parking lots are impervious. So um, replacing that with a, a green infrastructure, yeah, reduces that right. drainage fee. Exactly. And and the other things that it does, it beautifies a neighborhood. It's starting, you know, green it we see many organizations doing rain gardens and installations and planting of trees and bringing nature into the city. Detroit right now is below 20% in tree canopy cover. And a city generally of our type in the Midwest and to the east wants to be at 40% canopy. Mm. So bringing mm. any green in, and the reason those are important figures is it's it actually helps with air quality it actually mitigates heat it's actually you know all these different co-benefits addressing asthma etc so there's lots that this nature can do it's not just about the water but it does help with that as well so it's so it's so interesting because uh, uh as cities develop we we come in and and take out all the nature and build a city and then in the last you know then at some point people realize oh, that was a mistake and start trying to add it back, but you have to be more intentional and it's a bigger process because trees take time to grow. And, and we're, um, I won't say lucky, that's probably the wrong word to have vacant space in Detroit because the way we got that space wasn't great, but I guess, and there, there are opportunities to, to, uh, to do these types of projects without having to to displace whatever's currently there because we right. do have vacant space. Right. So. And there's some wonderful organizations working on that. Mayor Duggan is talking about trees a lot more. DNR is interested in that. Greening of Detroit, American Forest Foundation. So there's some um, there's momentum in that. But this is well, one way of having a little demonstration project to show what it can do. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I've been covering City of Detroit for 17 years and you know, climate and environment and, and green and blue infrastructure are things that you know, candidates for city council now um, pretty routinely talk about or address. And, and it certainly wasn't that way 17 years ago. And I know it's thanks to your work and other um, environmental organizations that have, have made these a de facto part of campaigning and political office. So that's that's amazing to see that that evolution that it, it's now on the on the radar that in a way it, it certainly wasn't 20 years ago. So. Right. So congratulations, because yeah. that, that's well, a pretty you. amazing. We were really thing. happy to help the city with their drainage charge um, to understand how green infrastructure can right. be incentivized. We were um, working with Detroit Economic Growth Corporation to figure out how can you plan and incorporate green infrastructure into the revitalization of these neighborhoods. So that's a core concept in the Eastern Market Plan. Yeah. So 
um, yeah. this demonstration of the church was just one small part of a bigger picture. And, and we've had, you know, this has come up in, you know, in the Detroit Future City, uh, you know, recently had a conversation with Anika Goss and the first iteration through all the current iterations of Detroit Future City's plans, green and blue infrastructure has been a part of, of it in Detroit has had a couple of planning directors that, that really wanted to emphasize this. Um, and it's, but sometimes in a city with so many financial challenges, it's, it's getting something everyone agrees is a great idea from paper into practice can be a challenge. Um, and you, you mentioned that there was foundation support for this project. I guess what, what, um, what, I guess what would be required to do these uh, types of things at scale? I think that's the big challenge is how to scale it up. Um, retrofits are more um, a little, you know, there has to be extra investment. Mm -hmm. If you're starting a new development, it actually isn't that much, it, it isn't that big of a difference at all. So actually getting people to incorporate green infrastructure thinking into their designs from the beginning when they're building out mm -hmm. in, a, mm -hmm. in an open space is really important. There's incentives, there's policies, um, and there's also potential to hook connecting it to other parts of the state. People are uh, carbon offsets, carbon, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in incorporations in helping urban areas uh, mm -hmm. build a stronger tree canopy base. And maybe that can help offset and sequester carbon in ways that it's helping them with their plan to reach zero impact. Um, we only want that to take place if they are doing all the other things that they should do, which is mm -hmm. switching to as much renewables, shifting to uh, more higher e efficiency, et cetera. But nature's got a place with helping with these big issues of the need for carbon carbon reduction. So when you think we're at 20% tree canopy cover, is that for the city of Detroit um, proper or is that the metro area? The metro area, I'm pretty okay. sure. That that's um that's interesting because you know I think um you know when I think of Detroit like we I mean, we have I'm right down the street from Clark Park which is so beautiful and there are a lot of trees I know there's areas of the city that are much less much less uh, green but you know I think of the suburbs I think of older suburbs that have you oh know, you were talking about no I think it's the city let me okay the answer. So, yeah. but, I, I, we have we have some suburbs that have beautiful older growth trees but we also have a lot of suburbs that are just like mile after mile of sprawl and strip mall and parking a lot and I mean that um I mean I know we we focus on Detroit a lot but but those types of communities those have to be part of that equation too right Absolutely. And something that often people don't think much about is just there we're in a major migratory uh, bird corridor up through the Great Lakes mm. Highway. Mm -hmm. So as these birds are moving north and south, and we've seen a dramatic loss in bird diverse bird species and volume. And so giving them those stopover sites along the way, uh, just the smallest of mm -hmm. little bit of woodlot or something in the backyard, it doesn't have to be a massive park. They need that on the way to refuel as they go north and south mm -hmm. on those migrations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I recently, we were very happy to run a piece from a high school student in Detroit who had written an op-ed about um, how everyone in the city could plant a pollinator garden in their yard and, and attract um, attract pollinators. So I thought that was great. And I loved that this high school kid was focused on this. And, and, and if anyone from the city is listening to this, I can connect you with this kid. He's got some great ideas and he's very persuasive. But um, okay, so I've gotten this a little off track. How did you get connected with uh, with the Sacred Heart Church? Why was that a good candidate for this project? 
Well, we we have been partnering with Eastern Market for quite some time, mm -hmm. and they're part of that community. And so we approached Father Thomas um, mm -hmm. to see if he would be interested in this project. He has said since then, he thought, oh, we'll probably never see them again. And we, <laughs> and we came back and we actually did it. And one of the most fun events was, and this, this is the first and maybe the only time when I've been part of a parking lot blessing. So we had a big <laughs> celebration with the tents and the congregation was there. We gave away seedlings for them to plant at home and Father Thomas blessed the parking lot. So it was a <laughs> disclosure. <laughs> I love that. I think all parking lots should be. Uh, should be. <laughs> so, so is you know, as a as a demonstration project, have you gotten interest since then of of other groups that that want to do the same kind of thing at their business, church, community center, whatnot? Yeah, I think the biggest uh, obstacle or challenge is cost. Um, mm -hmm. I guess churches don't have huge budgets, but we've taken a lot of people on tours, everything from garden clubs who may be willing to help support an, a community in doing something like this. Mm -hmm. So it's been a wonderful educational opportunity to show others how nature can actually be part of the solution in a city like Detroit. Okay. So in, you guys just announced a focus initiative on the Keweenaw Heartlands as a global priority for biodiversity and climate resiliency, which has an opportunity to protect this extraordinary region for nature and people. And you've been quoted as saying about this, by acquiring this land, the Conservancy is protecting a landscape of global significance to the nature conservancy, to the Great Lakes, to the state, and especially to area communities. So you've also said that the Conservancy truly believes the stewardship of these lands is best left to local residents. Given the magnitude of the size of the land, how does an organization like the Nature Conservancy go about doing that? Well, let me back up because I, I think a lot of the folks that might listen to this haven't even been to the Keweenaw and they may not even know where it is. It's like, yeah, you know, actually, yes, please. So <laughs> it's, it's the northernmost part of Michigan. It, it jets out oh, like, the peninsula. Yeah, so if this here? is, I can't tell if it's the mirror image, but if this is the UP, uh -huh. it is way out here on the tip of the thumb. Okay. Out in the middle of the largest freshwater lake in the world, Lake Superior. So it is truly, truly one of the most culturally significant and ecologically and geologically significant region in the world. Um, it's That's why it has such global significance. So um, it's an extraordinary place for, I'm just going to rattle off a few facts because I want people to Please. go there and experience it. It is um, the first evidence of human metalworking is there. Wow. The largest lava flow on earth is there 500 miles deep. It goes way back in indigenous history and this volcanic spine of rock cliffs um, jet uh, run the whole length of the peninsula. And it's extraordinarily significant for wildlife and climate resiliency. So it's one of the most unfragmented areas in the region and is important for climate change, wildlife. But really what was going on is this tip of the uh, peninsula is an area that really is it started out as a copper history, very big copper sources and, and largest in the world. Um, and then it shifted to a forest economy. And now its future is really in outdoor recreation. So its natural resources are really the future. And we see a lot of communities in Michigan where the factory closed that, that employed everybody, that their mm -hmm. next chapter really is about their quality of life, that's what Michigan's about, pure Michigan. And how do you transition in a community to that, that future? And so when these lands were put up for sale, 
there's a significant amount of local concern that public access has been part of their life the whole mm-hmm. time. And it's vital to the snowmobiling, all the activities that people enjoy that visit there. And this is a place that people from around the country care about, and especially the Chicago and Wisconsin, uh, people go there every summer. And it has had increasing tourism, which means challenges in affordable housing and infrastructure and all these other things that I haven't even said the word conservation yet, right? So (laughs) is people and nature thriving together the future for that region was essential to see that these lands were protected. So the announcement we made last week was that we were able to acquire those 31,000 acres, which is a lot of land. Yeah. Um, and so if you look at a map in the articles, it's 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 basically that whole tip. The exciting thing is though, we, we, we have a few nature preserves up there, but we, we don't intend to, in the long term, to own this. We really think that it, it's going to require, and, and the community knows this, a shared management vision and that public ownership is probably the right destination between the state, the county, and the township. And, and so we um, have brought in some experts in rural economic development to help facilitate that process. And there's a 17-member planning committee that we're supporting and sponsoring, and the state is sponsoring that too, to help them determine their future. And then over time, we will transition those lands. So it's a really exciting learning opportunity because we think a lot of the communities, the the Mott Foundation provided the support to to run this community engagement process, which we're really grateful for. And one of the uh, big interests is that whatever we learn from this, can it help other communities Mm -hmm. who are facing the same issues? So, and you mentioned your, uh, your, uh, advisory council. I, I don't think you said advisory council, but you mentioned the 17 person planning committee, yeah. Planning committee, right. Um and you know we've talked about you know project in Detroit. We're talking about project here. Um and and obviously you know you're talking about the the culture of recreation and and public use of lands that that happens up there. You're 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 doing projects in places where there are strong cultural ties to the land, whether it's the black community in Detroit or um in a native community somewhere else in the state. When you're looking at planning for land, um, talk a little bit more, and I'm sure the planning committee is a big part of that, talk a little bit more about how you um, make sure that, that the use of the land is culturally appropriate for the land, the people, and the resources that are there. So before we even uh, uh, developed the planning committee, we did a lot of listening. So we've had, um, four public meetings, which may not sound like much, but when you're in a community of about 1,200 people and you mm-hmm. have 300 people show up, that's uh, that's thousands in any other jurisdiction. Right, yeah, that's um, pretty good. Yeah, we've done um, extensive interviews, and this is through the people we hired, that th- this is their area of expertise, mm-hmm. uh, over 60 90-minute interviews, a survey that 2,000 people have responded to. So that's the first tranche is, what do they value about these lands? What are they most worried about? What is necessary in the go forward that we assure is protected? And that includes uh, you know, input from the tribal community. It includes input from the different jurisdictions and the different user groups. And so those are the people that are on this planning committee because we wanted the representation to be the, those that depend on the use of it. So that would be everything from uh, mount, uh, mount, uh, snowmobiles and mountain biking and outdoor recreation interests 
to the county and township in the state, to the tribe, and making sure we have those voices at the table. They know their issues better than we do. We just want to support their process. We are not worried about conservation being our goals being achieved in that because that's what they value. And so uh, it's essential that we find that. And this will be the place where we find that balance. How do is it used so that it can support the community's local economy? Yeah. Even when, when an organization comes in really with a sincere intentions to, to, to honor the local community and the, and the use of the land that the community supports, and that it, there's no question that that's what's going to happen on the organization's end, it takes sometimes some time to build up trust with the other stakeholders. Oh. You talk a little bit about how that process of building trust develops. Right. I mean, I think we're still working on that. I think that does take time. I think it helped that 20 years ago, um, one of my first big land projects was a project Mm -hmm. where we protected the rim of this very same place, uh, over 6,000 acres that now the state owns. So um, it, it was helpful, I think, at some level that the Nature Conservancy had been there and done something that was Uh, really valued by the community. And that's actually, we got calls from the community saying, uh, you know, if we, they wanted the state to buy all this land, but the state was not in a position to do that. So we got calls saying, hey, could you come back? And so that's actually what drew us back in. Um, But I think slowly but surely, I mean, we're still earning that trust. And Mm -hmm. all we can do is try to support a process that brings people together so they can hear each other. Yeah, I think you've said so many things that are very important, and I hope that they're takeaways for folks listening, because I've seen, you know, in 22 years of journalism, I've seen people do community engagement efforts that sometimes are done well and sometimes aren't done so well. And the stuff you've talked about here, um, having long, in-depth, multiple conversations, really listening, building that track record, those are such key elements, and none of that happens quickly. It's it's a painstaking process, and you also have to be willing to say, um, we're not, we haven't done the work yet and we have to take a couple steps back from where we thought we wanted to be, right? Like you have right. to be in real time reassess. I, I think also thing. trust in us matters, but it really is more about trust with each other. Mm-hmm. So in our work, what I find is I talk to so many people and I hear them, they want the same things, but mm-hmm. when they talk to each other, they don't hear each other and they think they're in conflict over use or conflict Mm -hmm. for future. And so a lot of of this is about, we're hearing that they want the same quality of life, future Mm -hmm. for their children, public access, protect the local economy. Yet I think they don't necessarily hear that in each other's needs and and, um, goals. And so a lot of it is about how the community come together and hear each other and just support that process. Well, that's really important too. Yeah, that you can facilitate um, a relationship between different groups in the community that that may come into the process with, um, you know, their own separate complex relationships to each other. So you have a, a pretty nuanced and com- complicated role in, in well, this effort. And, but I just want to be clear, we've also hired people who've done this in yeah. communities. So we brought That's in rural economic um, development experts to facilitate that. Rural economic success is their name. So um, because even then, people will view us as having a conservation agenda. So we right. need to be just one of many in that conversation to be trusted. So I think, yeah, I think that there's so many, uh, so many great takeaways from what you're saying, and that's that's another important one too. Is is to to um, I think that's sometimes uncomfortable for organizations, um, even newspapers, to sometimes say we've got to step back and and put ourselves, um, you know, 
not uh, put ourselves on the level of everyone else. It, it's right. a, for organizations, it sometimes feels like a loss of control, but it and it is, but it's that's not bad. That's, right. You have to have trust yeah. in the process, and um, and then, and then your like, partners. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. you can't you can't just ask them to trust you. You have to trust them too. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Um, well, that's really interesting. And I definitely, um, I would definitely love to, to maybe they'll have us back on to talk about how this process is going, because I feel like that could be its own hour long conversation about, <laughs> about how this all right. plays well, out. The, the foundation who's supporting it also, and this is something of high interest to the state that we're required to write up what we learn and how it went so it can be shared with others in case it helps them with their efforts. Oh, I, I, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these issues of affordable housing, infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, public safety, and places where it's um, someone compared it to, it's like a Super Bowl every weekend mm -hmm. up there during the times of uh, the fall colors. And it's so beautiful in August and September. There's this infusion. The winter depends on snowmobiles, but this is an area that gets almost, you know, on average, 27 feet of snow every year i mean it's different wow. <laughs> so it's um that's why the summer months are incredible and so how do you manage that influx of people every weekend and so those are really serious issues with affordable housing such that other communities are facing in our beautiful areas where people go in the summertime and that's what draws them to michigan you know and there's there's a there's an analog um i'm sorry i'm getting this a little bit off track but there's uh there's a process that has become popular in some cities called participatory budgeting i don't know if you've heard of this but it's a process where cities uh allocate a certain amount of probably discretionary funds to communities so they're not saying like here you can decide how to spend you know the roads budget or the or the the public safety budget, but there's a you know we're going to spend this amount of CDBG funds in your neighborhood. The community should drive this process of how to make improvements. And there's actually one in my neighborhood um, about Clark Park, and it was it was a fascinating process. And it it really I think they're they're working on the things the community had had marked as um, had marked as important. I mean the the project isn't done yet, but it's just it's. It's, I think there's so many lessons for all types of entities, for foundations, for nonprofits, for governments, like that, that really like listening to what people want is really never a bad idea and, and ways to formalize that um, are, are very important. So I'm, I would really love to, to catch up again on, on how this process unfolds and on that right. report that's produced. So, um, all right, so I, and we've, we've touched on this a little, um, but in the sustainability space, what are the greatest challenges that you're facing in the next five or 10 years? Well, three things come to mind, and I've mentioned a couple of them. Um, you know, for us as an organization, as a global conservation organization, at, at climate change is significant, mm -hmm. biodiversity loss is significant. These are the biggest challenges. And then how to actually bring that down to the ground. And as the director in Michigan, my job is to figure out for the nature conservancy, what's our maximum contribution to addressing those goals? So a project like we just talked about is a huge way to contribute to climate change and biodiversity. I think the other big challenge though that underlies all of, the, all of this is the partisan environment that we mm -hmm. live in right now. Because these are not, they should not be political issues. But when you mention them, immediately people 
begin to react in a political way when it actually should be a common ground. Uh, these are these are threats to our survival, to our economy, to our national security. Um, it, it's so essential that we find a way for people to come together and hear each other and realize that when we talk about these issues, we're not trying to blame anybody. We're not trying to tell each other, no, you can't have this or that, that we have to come together and actually share in the solutions and because it's affecting us all. So that's where it makes me happy with some of these projects is it it neutralizes this political rhetoric and we can actually talk to each other and find out we actually want the same things and we can get on board with solutions together. It's so interesting because this is happening to all of us. And, you know, I thought I'm 47. And when I, even 10 years ago, I thought, oh, you know, the impacts of climate change, there'll be things my son really has to live with. Like at the end of my life, you know, these things will start to get intense and haha, well, that was wrong. Um, you know, we're now having hundred year storms you know, with real regularity, you know, every four or five years. Um, we had, you know, it's 65 degrees, it's three weeks till three weeks till Thanksgiving and it was 65 degrees yesterday. This is not normal and we're all experiencing it, but it doesn't seem like, it, are we a little bit like the proverbial frog in the pot and the temperature's turning up and we don't, and none of these things seem to be ringing the alarm bell that you might imagine, you know, a series of 65 degree days in November might, might prompt. So I think we're all seeing it. And I, uh, we had a tremendous event with the Sustainability Network um, when they sponsored our global scientists to come in and speak in Detroit. Catherine, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, which I would encourage folks to listen to her, her TED Talks and such. But her biggest issue is that we don't talk about it enough. And if we talk about it in this polarizing political way, that's not really very helpful. It's actually we're seeing the impacts. So unpacking it again so that you can do something about it, I think is, and feel like you're part of the solution is, and it's it's not that hard to do. I just planted a bunch of trees and a bunch of them are actually ones that are transitioning north because species are moving. And so the conservation district gave me a lot of great advice to say, try some of these because we're trying to see how they do because they're going to be the next future because tree species are changing or sign I'm our old family van is going to die soon. I'm going to sign up for an electric vehicle and we're saving now. That's my little step. There's so much we can do. And um, I think if you get people to talk about it and actually they see it more. And I think if you talk to young people, they're very discouraged about the, the, the world we're handing them and helping um, them engage in solutions. They're very, most of them are actually very interested in what actions can we take. So. Yeah. Um, no, they definitely have, we're definitely handing them quite the problem and they are much more energetic and kind, I think. So I, you know, I don't think we can say like, oh, they'll sort it out because they're better than we are, though they may be. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, we've got quite the, quite the challenge being handed to them. And I, I do have hope for them, but yeah, we have to do our part in, in doing a better job of preparing yeah. to hand off the world to them. And I think if you, uh, this is part of the way we approach issues at the Nature Conservancy, but first, what's the, what, what are the facts? What's the research and the science? And then can we demonstrate something in a project and, and experiment and figure out that solution? Then you, you said the word scale up. How do you scale up? Well, 
And that's what we talk about challenges. I mean, you you mentioned this earlier. Cost. Cost is the big challenge to do um, to doing a lot of this work. Yes, but a lot of our work has to do with figuring out how do you make it work with the market, because uh, some of these practices, for example, we work in the agricultural community pretty extensively with farmers on sustainability practices, and and. For them, a lot of it is about the benefits are actually soil health. If they actually mm -hmm. introduce something like cover crops, it actually hangs onto the soil. These intense storms won't wash the topsoil off because that would be a problem for a farmer. You want to keep your topsoil. And it actually improves soil health. So the yield, we can demonstrate that the yield is higher on those crops. So it actually, and they're using less fuel in when they employ conservation tillage practices, which means tilling it less. Mm -hmm. So these are things that save money, actually improve yield. And while we're, why we are there is we're interested in that topsoil staying in place and actually preventing it from running off because it carries with it the nutrients that cause the algal blooms. And then there's the water quality impact. So we actually can find solutions. It isn't always cost as the barrier. In fact, costs actually may be on your side in these issues. Right, sure. No, I, I mean, I spent a pretty good bit of money uh, mitigating what happened to my basement in the 2021 summer storm. And I would much rather spend that money on the front end to um, prevent such a thing from happening. So yeah, right, makes right. a lot of sense. Um, so in terms of within the, the nature conservancy itself, how do you personally view sustainability in terms of its applicability in your organization? Well, it's, I'll go back to that word balance. We are really focused on how do we, um, people in nature, how, what's the balance in use of natural resources? And it's not and to, to enable it to support the economy, to support life on earth, um, and that these resources can provide for future generations. So sustainability is central to what we're trying to do. And what we're trying to bring to that, the application is, Okay, what's the research and science that we have to better understand? So we know that it's we're we're not just doing ad hoc actions, but that there is an actual theory of change is kind of how we talk about it. And then we try to demonstrate that. We try to apply it. We own lands and waters where we are boots on the ground trying to figure it out or working with the farmer, working with the forester. And then you really have to move up that chain to policy, to inform policy, or we're working a lot with corporations as they full, you know, form their sustainability goals. So you have to get into the corporate boardrooms, but you also have to get to institutions like the World Bank and the incentives that they put out there for development. So it's the whole chain. And, and that's why I love working for this organization because our work kind of, we follow that chain and try to figure out to make sure we get to the solutions. In a perfect world, we wouldn't be needed if if we had all the science and toolbox and people knew how to inform their decisions, then the world would be operating under a sustainability umbrella that actually could persevere. So long, long term, you'd like to put yourself out of business. <laughs> I, I, I often describe it that way because if then that means everybody understands what it means to live sustainably in the world. That would be perfect. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, so what um what best practices in sustainability have you come across that have informed your work? So uh, I gave an example of the one with the farmers and the agricultural practices, and um, there's a lot of momentum in that space. 
with forest land management, where we have working forests where we are actually, and this will sound surprising, wow, the Nature Conservancy is cutting trees down. What we're trying to do is we have working forests where we're trying to employ sustainable practices to demonstrate you can still be profitable, you can actually sink more carbon, you can actually have better diversity, which we know if it's all one species and that next weird invasive bug is going to take the whole thing down like it took all the ash trees. You know, these are um, concepts that we want to demonstrate and, and then share with the industry and those that work in it so that they can uh, realize that it's it doesn't actually have to impinge on profitability or practices that they're used to. It actually, in some ways, protects their assets even more. So we're applying it in all these sort of working landscapes, but then there are places like a community, like the Keweenaw mm -hmm. community, where you have it's it's a very complex web, and you have to figure out that plan and that uh, inner interface of people in nature, and and anticipate the long term. It can't be a short term view on the world. You're really trying to do this for future generations. And that's, but that's a, uh, that's a, that's a complicated sell for people, right? Like we're doing this thing and, and we all need to do these things and it will change your life in the short term and hopefully in meaningful ways, like maybe your basement won't flood as much or this, that or the other your crop topsoil won't wash away. But, um, you know, some things have less, less immediate results and, and uh, we all want a better world for our children and grandchildren, but it's, it's is it hard well, to see? But but that's why demonstrations are really important. Yeah. We we actually can show on the ground that it, it it's real and that it, we can demonstrate that. So we have um, we have years of data collection in places where we've been employing these practices in different arenas, and we can actually show someone. Sometimes we'll create incent we'll we'll raise incentive dollars to try something. Find a farmer or a forester or somebody who's curious and interested and interested in sustainability mm -hmm. and we can actually help financially transition them to those practices and then they can see for themselves if it, it actually demonstrates all that so it can't be hypothetical and it's got to be tangible and you have to be able to show it and then demonstrate that for others and and the, the at the end of the day the most important communications entity is really a farmer to farmer a forester to forester uh, we're still a nature conservancy. So I think the social networks that exist within industries are the best influencers. And so we have to prove that this stuff works and actually then they share it with each other and then it scales up. Okay. Um, this kind of leads into the next question. So what is the role of sustainability in the future of the, of the city of Detroit and specifically um, Detroit with its, its challenges and its baggage and its its opportunities. What is what does sustainability look like in our future here? Well, I think we've been touching on all of those things. It's really that balance. Um, it's it's anticipate, and I think the city is doing a great job of trying to anticipate that. You want people to be able to be in their homes and stay in their homes, but you want to bring um, practices and revitalization plans that balance nature and people. And I'm excited to see more references to trees to nature and and such because i think that will address a number of those issues economic sustainability is another field from my own so i think but clearly that is vital and important and the city's got their eye on that um so it depends on how you define sustainability but 
I think the practices and the issues that we've been talking about this morning are all deployable and, and, and relevant to Detroit. I think that is, um, I think there's a, there's a really interesting connection there when you're talking about the, the farmer convincing the farmer that this isn't just some environmental like fluff thing. This has a, this has a, I mean, not, I, I'm putting that in the words of someone who was, okay. Uh, <laughs> this is a thing that has a tangible impact on their lives. When I talk to people, you know, when I talk to my neighbors and I talk to people in Detroit, what people want um, is is a lot of times they talk about the city they grew up in, where where every house had a person in it, where there were beautiful, I've heard people talk about like backyard fruit trees, even like things that there were kids running up and down the blocks, that, that the city that, that felt like the city that they grew up in. Um, and you know, then sometimes there's there's this perception that there's all these newfangled plans like urban farms, and and some people are very excited about that and support that. But then some other folks say, why should we, of all the cities in the world, have to be the one that that does this thing that you know is 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 odd and and not like the city we grew up in, but. Um, or that, that that makes a city something different, but there seems like a connection there to what you're saying, like showing showing that um, you know these two things can marry each other. That 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 city, you know, the people who grew up here remember um, where it was denser, where it was a more um, you know the the block looked this certain way because there were these you know lovely gardens that people had and and these well kept homes and things that those two things can go together that that it's that yeah. analogy to the farmer this isn't an environmental extra this is this gets you to well i think there's there's so many organizations that are trying to bring great ideas to the mm -hmm. table and i'm all for experimentation and demonstration sites to see what can work but i think the most important thing that you said and what you were describing is you talking to your neighbors and mm -hmm. you're coming together to actually talk about what you want your community and your neighborhood to be. And I think that um, is an important part of what I think Mayor Duggan has been trying to do too, is actually define some areas where communities can come together and decide who they want to be. And mm -hmm. it's because ultimately that's what that glue, that organizations can come in and try to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. But it's really the people on the ground who live there that giving them um, agency and um, feeling like they can make a difference and them actually having those conversations to me is the most important uh, variable. Yeah, so. and if I ever have to put a bet on anything, I will always bet on Detroiters because uh, this, this city can, this is an amazing city with amazing people. So, um, so I guess one one uh, final question, I guess, what what has inspired you personally in this work? I, I think... Um, it's the tangibility. It's actually having an impact on people's lives to make the world better. It sounds like Patsy phrase, but it's really true. Um, and I think actually probably the most rewarding moments are when I get people to hear each other who think that they have, that they see the world differently, mm -hmm. and that they have opposing opinions, only to find out that they actually see it the same way. I think those moments give me hope that we can get through this partisanship and actually come together and see that these issues are common ground. So I think, uh, and you know, I will admit, it feels really great to be able to walk on some of the results of our work, you know, when you know that something's going to be there and protected for a long time. But conservation has to come in many forms. It can't be just all set aside lands. It, it has to be in, in communities like Detroit too. So when you can find people to come together, like we did at Sacred Heart, 
to see the, the the impact of a parking lot, you know, and, and a garden, but a, a blessed parking lot. Yeah, right. And those are those are really special moments. So tangibility, people together, see, and, and seeking solutions that actually have meaning and lasting results. Um, and I'm going to sneak in one final question. My eye has been caught by that lovely poster in the background the whole oh. time we've been talking, and I was wondering where where that is. I'm I can't quite. Sure. Yeah, I mean, those are dunes. So that's going to be on Lake Michigan shoreline. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the dunes work up in the northwest part of the state. We okay. have a that's uh, Point Betsy, and it's going to be right near there. Well, if I were room reader, I'd give you a high point on that because it's a very <laughs> lovely picture, very <laughs> eye-catching. So <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, it's really been interesting talking to you today. I've learned a lot. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I want to thank you so much for, for doing this podcast, sharing your time. I know you're very busy, and you've been very generous with your time. And thank you for the important work you're doing for, for Detroit, for Southeast Michigan, and for, for all of us. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for your interest. Well, all right, thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Sustainable Business Network Detroit, the Green Stream podcast. Remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on sbn-detroit.org and stay tuned for more conversations on sustainability from inside and around the city. 